Mark chapter 5 and verses 1 to 20, the healing of a demon-possessed man. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us out amongst the pigs, allow us to go unto them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christine. Bad hair day for pig farmers, that one, but there we go. Let's pray. Well, it's a very familiar story probably to lots of us here, and uh, perhaps we've read it and uh, considered it from Sunday school right through. Perhaps for others it's a new story and astonishing that such a crazy man could be delivered. We pray as we come to your word this evening that you would encourage us as we follow Jesus and as we seek to combat evil and wickedness wherever we find it. And thank you that your kingdom is coming, that it is drawing near, 
as your spirit fills our lives, we see your kingdom come in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So we pray now that as, as we look at this familiar story, you would strengthen our faith and encourage us in our walk with Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So do keep uh, Mark chapter 5. We're preaching our way through Mark uh, this term, and uh, we've got to uh, chapter 5. I want you to consider five um, scenarios, five scenes, four or five, I can't remember, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think I've got five, uh, five scenes that you might easily uh, hear on the news in the evening, on the television news. First scenario, an aid worker in Sudan is feeding a group of starving children when surrounded by armed men who demand that all the food allocated for the children is surrendered to them. If they don't surrender the food, then the aid worker will be shot. Scenario two, uh, terrorists break into a church in South Africa, threatening mayhem and destruction and murdering several people. Scenario three, a 12-year-old small boy is threatened with a machete if he will not deny his Christian faith. Scenario four, a 10-year-old in North Oxford is beaten up because he refuses to carry drugs for the school bully. Scenario five, a middle-class church-going six-year-old is abused and beaten by his stepfather. All five relatively recent news items uh, on our, in our media. And I could go on, and as could all, all of you, about uh, similar incidents. Situations of wickedness which we feel pretty helpless to do anything about. And yet the strange thing is the that often the hardest thing in any inquirer's group, or alpha course or something like that, the hardest thing is to convince people that they are sinners and that they have a need of God. It is not that people are filled with self-love. On the contrary, they are often full of self-loathing and despair. But we seem preconditioned to deny the objective existence of evil, of Satan, even though the dreadful truth is that we are all caught up in sin and the evidence of evil is all around us. We see the terrible consequences of human sin and we read about it and see it on our screens all the time. We know that in our hearts is the constant battle between good and evil. And yet in our heads, so often there is the delusion that somehow everything will be all right in the end. Historians tell us that uh, evolutionary optimism, as it was known, ended in the trenches of the First World War. But I suggest, it seems to me, that it lingers on in post-imperial Britain. And sometimes that evolutionary optimism is fueled uh, by uh, uh, the arrogance and ambition of some scientists reluctant to see the limitations of science. The existence of evil is all around us. The battle with it is constant. And in Mark's fast-moving, even racy uh, introduction to Jesus, he's taken us here in, in chapter 5 to the farthest shore of Lake Galilee and to a confrontation, a dramatic confrontation 
with evil, as dramatic a confrontation as any in the gospel narrative. And I think it confronts us with some spiritual realities that we do well to face up to. You will recall that in Mark 1 to 8, the writer is answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And we've seen the claim in chapter 1 and verse 1 is that he is the Son of God. What evidence is there for that? Well, of course, there's the evidence of the Old Testament prophecy, John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, and he says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who take away the sin of the world. Then there is the baptism story and the voice and the dove. Then there is the proclamation of the new kingdom and the first response of the new Israel as four fishermen follow Jesus. Then he heals people and exorcises demons. He even forgives sins. He brings a radical new interpretation of the law at the end of chapter 2. Though attracting huge crowds, we see him increasingly concentrating on 12 disciples. 12, of course, being a very significant number corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the parable of the sower in chapter 4, he plainly teaches that to receive him into your life is to plant the seed of fruitfulness in your heart, is to begin to see righteousness winning the battle in your life over wickedness. When Jesus takes root in your life and mine, we begin to grow into the people uh, that God wants us to be. And finally, at the end of chapter 4, of course, uh, he controls even the weather. And as we know only too well, we can't do that. So who is this Jesus? Well, what a, an amazing whammy we receive in chapter 5. It takes a maniac in a foreign country, raving like a lunatic and behaving like a cross between an animal and the balmy army in Sydney uh, to get it right. What do you want with me, Jesus Son of the Most High God, verse 7. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Here is an accurate identification of Jesus. What can we learn from this? Three things. First of all, the presence of Jesus provokes evil. The presence of Jesus provokes evil. Evil identifies him correctly. Evil opposes him powerfully but evil fears him. We've had a very similar thing in chapter 1, where Jesus also exorcises a demon, and that demon, as we saw at that time a few weeks ago, also accurately identifies him. And both here in this story and in chapter 1, the possessed person uh, is in great fear of Jesus. Somehow Jesus has authority which these demons greatly fear. So evil identifies Jesus, it opposes Jesus, and it fears him. Well, let's look at the context carefully. Jesus takes the disciples away for an away day. That's effectively what he's doing. Uh, it could have been like a sort of a Holy Spirit uh, away day on an Alpha course. We've got an Alpha course just starting. I hope you've all woken up to that. It could be a parish weekend away, but it's, it's Jesus going off for a time alone with the disciples. It was fun. It involved a boat trip, and we all enjoy a boat trip, and this particular boat trip turned out to be a very exciting one indeed. 
And so the disciples were no doubt excited. They got quality time with Jesus. They were also very frightened as the storm hit them at the end of chapter 4. But Jesus demonstrated his power by stilling the storm. The great thing, of course, is that the crowds are left behind on the other side of the lake. They're going to a place where people don't know who Jesus is, where they can just have time together. We do this sometimes as a staff. Uh, We head off into the countryside somewhere. We're about to do it in a couple of weeks' time. And we pray together and we talk together and we relax together. It's great and perhaps we should do it uh, more often. It's usually uneventful. Uh, uh, normally uh, nothing very dramatic happens. There was a slight incident on one occasion when we were sitting somebody's, in somebody's garden, a rather lovely garden out near Hayford, and uh, our family's worker, Barbara Kinghorn, who was rather an animal-loving person, was a little bit surprised when my dog suddenly presented her with a half-dead rabbit. But that was a slightly dramatic moment, but it wasn't quite in the category of, uh, of this story. It was very different very different for Jesus and his disciples. They are confronted by this utterly terrifying character as they land on the beach. And we see it throughout the gospel story, and you cannot be a Christian for long before you discover that where Jesus is, Satan will attack. Whereas human beings, like the disciples, are slow to identify Jesus, it's taking eight chapters before Peter gets it right, and even then he's only half right. The forces of evil make no such mistake. They know that their days are up, that they are in trouble. And the demonic forces that totally controlled this man knew that they had met their match in Jesus. What are you going to do with us? What is going to happen to us now? What is going to happen to this poor, possessed man? Being a Christ follower will put all of us in the front line in the war with wickedness. You cannot be a Christian and not find that Satan will attack you. And indeed, it'd be fair to say that if you've been coasting through Christian life and there haven't been difficulties, I don't think that's probably true for anyone here at all, actually, then probably something is not quite right in your Christian life. We should expect to be soldiers in the front line of the spiritual battle. And we do well to prepare ourselves for that, Uh, putting on the whole armor of God, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, and we do well to prepare those for whom we care for it as well. The presence of Jesus in this story and in our lives will provoke satanic attack. But secondly, we can learn that the power of Jesus overcomes evil. The power of Jesus overcomes evil. He identifies it correctly, he opposes it, he controls it, and very significantly, he does not fear it. This ferocious figure is actually, of course, terrified of Jesus. And it's amazing how often evil backs down in the face of good. I've told this story in, the, in this pulpit before, but um, I remember being at a rugby match once. Actually, it was the varsity match between Oxford and Cambridge. Rather surprisingly, this incident happened. And I was standing with a friend who's a very uh, brave and strong Christian leader. And uh, two thugs either side of us began to have a fight with each other. And they broke their beer glasses and were going at each other with the broken glasses. They were both about six foot three, and my friend is about five foot eight. And they were probably 20 years younger than him. Uh, Nevertheless, he stepped in between them and said, stop fighting. 
stop fighting. And I thought, they're going to kill him. This is the end, you know. <laughs> but they immediately quietened down. He looked them in the eye, and, he, uh, and, the, and evil backed away in the face of brave goodness. Jesus is in no doubt that this uh, man is not, uh, not just mentally ill. Now, of course, we are less familiar with this kind of thing than Christian leaders in other parts of the world, and there may be some of you here who have encountered this very kind of thing more powerfully than we tend to do in North Oxford. If you talk with Christian leaders in South America or Africa and other parts of the world, of course, this kind of incident is more common. They seem to confront it more regularly. And, and it's possible, of course, very possible, that there's more of it on our doorsteps than we care to imagine. Of course, there is danger of seeing a devil under every bed, and I have no doubt that many people have been ill-served by attempted exorcism when a course of Prozac and a chat with a counselor would probably have been more helpful. In fact, uh, I know uh, one very uh, good friend of mine who was an ordinand in the Church of England, not from Oxford, I hasten to add, and not from a theological college anywhere near here, um, who suffered from a bipolar condition, a diagnosed bipolar condition, uh, was not at all helped by a group of fellow ordinands who decided in the middle of the night to put into practice the theories they had just learned in their session on liturgical exorcism. He, he was woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, in order to have this uh, service read over him. Uh, a midnight phone call to me, or middle-of-the-night phone call uh, to me, uh, indicated that uh, the diagnosis was, I think, largely incorrect. But do not underestimate the reality and the power of demonic activity. But Mark presents us with a Jesus who has total mastery over the forces of evil, total mastery. The man is dramatically delivered, verse 15, and the pigs are dramatically destroyed. There are, I think, only, there are, I think, only two stories in the Gospels where Jesus actually destroys things. Uh, I expect you all know what they are. He destroys these pigs, and he destroys figs, pigs and figs. So I think there should be a poem in there somewhere for somebody. But anyway, that's, uh, that, that's what it is. So secondly, secondly, we learn from here that the power of Jesus overcomes evil. The power of Jesus overcomes evil. In a sense, those two things are obvious from the story. It's pretty obvious that, uh, that, that uh, and most of us who have been Christians for a while will know that, uh, uh, or in church leadership for a while, that spiritual attack is, goes with the territory. We know that that's the case, and we also know that by faith, as we pray, as we bring uh, the spirit of Jesus to bear in the spiritual battle, we see great victory. Evil is overcome in the power of prayer in Jesus' name. We know that. Uh, this story illustrates it, and we know it in our experience. But I think also we learn that the people of Jesus confront evil, or do they? The people of Jesus confront evil, or do they? Do we, in fact, rationalize evil more easily, more comfortably than confront it? Are we not dangerously inclined to embrace evil rather than to reject it, often in the name of being culturally relevant. We certainly don't seem to be able to control evil in our own strength or in our society. 
and we certainly fear evil. And many of us have been, I'm sure, very afraid when confronted by uh, wickedness or violence of one sort or another. I want you to look with me then towards the end of the story. Just um, look initially at verse uh, 18. Uh, we'll start at, I'll start at verse yes, at 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus n- did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The man, you see, longed to become one of the chosen few who were to be with Jesus. It's striking that the, the words in Greek in chapter 3 and verse 14, when Jesus chooses the disciples, are the same words here that are used by the man. He wants to become right at the heart of things. He wants to be, uh, he wants to be with Jesus in order to learn to preach and to drive out demons himself. But Jesus wants people around him. He wants people on his team who are clear what the gospel is and are able to counter evil sin and wickedness wherever they see it. Jesus wants people who are realistic about this and are ready to confront evil, not not rationalize it, not embrace it, not be controlled by it, and not fear it. And this is what the church is supposed to be doing today. This is what we as a community are to be doing in society both in terms of intellectual unbelief, confronting that, but also confronting wickedness and injustice in society. It's the job of Christians. Some of us get paid a little bit to do it, but we all have this job. We're all in this mission. This man in this this story was firmly told that his part in the task was to go home and tell his story. He was not to be one of those entrusted with leadership of the early church. He was not to be one of the disciples, not even one of those extra people who kind of tagged along with the disciples. Now, why was that? Why did Jesus do that? What a, how differently we would have treated this man today. What a celebrity we would have made of this person he would definitely have made it onto the front page of Alpha News. For sure he would have been on the front page of Alpha News. He would almost certainly have got a write-up in some of the tabloids, and we would have slightly rejoiced on it. My chains fell off, could have been the headline. Because not only has he broken the chains, but the chains of his spiritual captivity have been broken too. This chap would have been interviewed on the God Channel for certain, and might have even made it onto the main news. He would have been a Christian celebrity. But Jesus has more wisdom than us. Just go home, quietly tell your story, and let your life be a witness. Let's see if it holds true for a long time. Let's see if you really have been changed. If your family can see the difference, then it's really making a difference. Go home to them. They know you best. They'll know if there's been a real change in you or not. Why did Jesus treat this man like this? Well, perhaps in part at least because he was so damaged and therefore perhaps Jesus knew that those scars would be with him all his life. Perhaps Jesus knew that uh, 
the pressure that was coming upon those chosen disciples when they got to Jerusalem just in a few months' time uh, would be very intense indeed and too much for this uh, convert who had had such a horrendous experience of evil. Perhaps he could not have coped with the intensity of team life amongst the disciples. So Jesus lovingly sends him home. And at home he does a great job. He shares his faith with his family and with the villages roundabout. And he does well. He does well. As I was preparing this sermon, I noticed in my file that I preached on this, uh, on this very text soon after I became vicar of St. Andrews. I preached on it uh, eight years ago. No doubt all of you remember every word of my sermon from that occasion. And I noticed in my, in my old notes that I, that I said this uh, seven years ago. I sense a heating up of the battle and that we as a church are going to be in the front line. I sense a heating up of the battle and that we as a church are going to be in the front line. And as I look back over those seven or eight years, nothing has happened makes me think that I was wrong, to be honest, but uh, there we go. And yet, God has taken the gospel forward. We've seen some tremendously exciting things and continue to do so. But the battle is intense. We are to be faithful as this man was. We are to speak up for Jesus. We are to let our lives speak of his mercy, and each of us will play a different role in that. But I believe that like Jesus and his chosen 12, we as a church are going forward. We are moving forward. We're going to grow, I trust, in godliness. We might also grow in numbers. I hope that we'll grow in our evangelistic impact. I hope that we'll grow in prayer. I hope that we will see the opportunities opening up in Cutslow becoming greater and greater and greater as we confront uh, some really needy situations in that place. I hope that we will be able to build on the much improved relationships we have, up, have with our neighboring parishes, that we'll be able to develop the embryonic schoolwork that we have managed to pioneer over uh, the last few years. I hope that many things that are at the beginning, just at the beginning here, as we battle forward, we're going to see God's kingdom come. We're going to see the church grow. We're going to partner with others. We're going to work together. We're going to equip others as much as we can, resourcing mission, as we put it in our vision statement. So we, like this man, rescued from evil uh, and uh, hopelessness in his situation, we need to go forward. We need to go to the place that Jesus sends us to go. And we should recruit the most suitable people for the jobs that need doing. Not just assume that everybody does everything. Some people, it's right to become uh, group leaders in a children's group on Sunday evening. That is the right thing for some people to do. And if that's the right thing for you to do, you should do that. Just like this man did what Jesus said. Go home and tell your friends. If that's what it is for you, to, if that's the right thing for you, that's the right, then, then you must do it. We must do what Jesus tells us to do. Can't sit on the fence. Can't, and can't do something that we want to do, but he doesn't want us to do. He wanted to go back over the lake. He wanted to get in the boat. 
I'm going to come with you, Jesus. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to be a great evangelist. I'm going to be one of the 12. No, said Jesus. You stay there. Run the Sunday school in the Decapolis. We have Jesus with us. He is with us as we trust in him. There is no need for us to fear the forces of evil or to compromise with them. We go forward with Jesus. We do what he says. If a few pigs and a few figs get damaged on the way, then so be it. The kingdom must be proclaimed. And what will happen if that is the case? What will happen if we are faithful? What will happen if we go to the place that Jesus tells us to go? Well, I'll tell you what will happen. More children in Sudan will get a meal. Those suffering terribly for the gospel will get more support. The bully in the playground will be helped in an anger management group and be part of a restorative justice group. The abused child will know love and the abuser will be brought to repentance. Christianity will be spread and the very things where evil is manifested on our news programs, in our newspapers, day by day, will be attacked as the gospel is proclaimed into those situations. You see it happening in your own lives. We see it happening all around the world. Let's decide. Like the 12 disciples who watched Jesus at work here, let's decide that we'll not be the same again because this word will change our lives and we will see the kingdom come. Amen.